So I'm a small town kid from Bozeman, Montana. My dad was the father of nine kids, and I'm one of those. The mantra in my house was always be interested in the world. Think of the world, not just your backyard, and get out there and make an impact. And that's just how I was raised. And it's funny, I've not shared this ever before from a media point of view, but I will share with you advice I would give any entrepreneur to say, be humble about it, be aware of it. I'm really proud of the things I've built and I've built some great exits and some great values, but I've also hit some really difficult times and had some downturns and one of them was... My name is Allie Wink. I am the CEO of Oobly. Oobly is headquartered in Davis, California, and we are tackling the problem of obesity and diabetes, at least in terms of the role of sugar, by trying to unlock the power of sweet proteins with precision fermentation and rehabilitate foods. Wow, that's a mouthful. <laughs> How do you spell oobly? Oobly is O-O-B-L-I. I was just asking because, I mean, I think a lot of different people could spell it different ways. And that way, anyone can check out the website, oobly.com. So yeah, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about your product and your company here and we'll be happy to listen. Oobly is a sort of an exciting marriage of what I consider the best of nature and the best of technology. We as a country and really as a world are sort of struggling with how to modernize our food supply. And one of the areas, though it's not certainly alone, is tackling how we've used the role of sugar in our food supply. If you look at the world watch on climate crops, sugar has been a top 10 harmful crop for the last 10 years. And that's not because we all know sugar is a really important crop. It's actually just because it's so overproduced now and it's so overproduced because of our overuse of it in so many things. So biologically, humans are all designed to crave sugar. Nothing bad with that. That's actually how we survive but need to figure out a way to upgrade sugar's role, both in our climate and our sort of crop production, but also in our bodies and the health result of having it in our diets, because so much sugar is not really what our bodies were designed to handle. And that's where we see it showing up in prediabetes and obesity today. If you look at a global statistic, almost 40% of major regions of the world, including North America, are prediabetic. And whether that's a good, bad, or other in terms of what's in our diet, the fact of the matter is it's a health crisis, and it's one we have to actually address. So that's where sweet proteins come in. We find out that decades ago, scientists discovered that there were these plants in West Africa and Southeast Asia that actually evolved along with us. They were in precious ecosystems, and they wanted apes and gorillas to climb up and eat them so that they would spread their seeds. But their precious ecosystems didn't afford them the sort of energy or caloric consumption to grow more leaves. So they evolved one tiny little protein that actually tricks apes, gorillas, and it so happens to be humans, into thinking that they've just had sweets in their mouth because it tricks their T1 and R1 taste receptors, which is where you experience it. But the moment you swallow it, it's actually a protein. So it works like a protein like in anybody's body, and it unfolds and it moves through your digestive system without increasing or decreasing your blood sugar levels and without hitting your gut microbiome. Fast forward to today, and we have a diet that's sugar, you could argue, is recklessly abundant in. We love the taste. Nobody wants to give that up, including me. I have a sweet tooth like anybody. But our bodies are rejecting it, hence the statistics that we see throughout the world. And sweet proteins are also really good at tricking us to think it's sugar. And so when you look at kind of the history of modern food supply trying to solve for alternatives for sugar, 
Most of them don't trick us, right? Our brains are pretty hardwired and we know when it's real sugar or not. Sweet proteins actually evolved in nature to trick us and they're very good at it. So fast forward and Oobly is a climate-friendly, health-positive, really good tasting and replacing what we use sugar for with sweet proteins for a game-changing result. And that's what we're working on. And how long has Oobly been around? Oobly's a sweet protein platform is a biotechnology company and biotechnology, big innovations, and actually credit to the founders who I joined two years ago, had been working on this already for more than five years before I got here because it takes a lot of R&D. So the company was an R&D company for six and a half years before we went commercial and we just got our first FDA grass approvals for safety this year and launched our first commercial products. But that's following seven years of research and development to figure out how to take these fruits and berries in nature and use precision fermentation to produce them. And why is that important? I I share that with you is a lot of people don't realize this, but it's kind of exciting what's happening with biotechnology. Precision fermentation allows you to use something that's from nature and what you have afterwards is identical to nature, but you're actually using technology to brew it, kind of like a wine or a beer. So you're actually not growing it. And that's really important when you're trying to unlock some of these gifts of nature that grow out of really precious ecosystems and at the same time not add to our climate problems. So that's what we're doing here at Ubly, but it's a lot of biotech. And what's your role in Ubly? So I joined as CEO. I have been a founder in the past, but I've also worked for founders before. How have I spent my career? I've spent my career somewhat by accident at the intersection of healthy living and technology unlocking it. And I'm unique in that I didn't know a long time ago that you would label me an entrepreneur. You sort of come by that, I think, by aptitude and natural pathway. I didn't really self-identify and say, oh, I'm going to go build companies. But what I got really attracted to is looking at all these massive health and well-being issues. And I became a specialist in sort of demand generation around the consumer leveraging technology. And that's resulted in me now spending more than 25 years in now five different industries. I've gone from consumer product goods to healthcare technology, to SaaS technology, to retail, and now in biotech. Biotech that really is biotech meets CPG, so I'm almost full circle. But the commonality is I've always been focused on using behavior-based sciences around the consumer to use technology to unlock healthy living problems and solutions. And as far as size, like what's the size of Ubly, either like revenue, employees, or what statistics can you give us? We're tiny in revenue because we just launched and we're private. We're venture backed. So I can't share that because we only launched about six weeks ago. So it's, it's early, early days on the commercial phase. What I can tell you is we've raised about a little less than $50 million. We're about 50 employees. We're seven years of R&D and we have our first proteins of about seven proteins that we're building off our technology platform. We have our first through what we call self-grass, and we're in the final FDA approval process. And we have three others on the platform going through the regulatory process. And our first product's out. We launched sweet protein-powered chocolates. And we really did that because it was a fun way for people to start to taste for the first time ever. What happens if you take a favorite food like a chocolate bar and you remove 70% of the sugar, but you do it with sweet proteins? Can you tell a difference? And we've had a lot of fun with that. But we're on the eve of, and actually, hopefully everyone will check out oobly.com and go see for yourself, our big release, which is a sweet teas category and our first beverages category. We're very excited about that. And it's part of our big initiative around rolling out food products, starting with drinks. 
And why drinks are so important is because if the goal is to try to bend the global health curve and you look at sort of the global health problem around sugar, we consume today, modern consumers throughout most regions, about 40% of our daily added sugar in drinks. So that's kind of the 800-pound gorilla of where it's just a lot more than what we used to do if you go back to 20 to 40 to 50 years ago. It's just not how we got our sugar. So what are you doing as far as like marketing-wise? You said you had some interesting studies or fun with, could you tell if it's sugar versus your sugar protein, basically? It comes to mind for me is like, it's been a while now. Maybe it's been 20, 30 years, who knows? But like when they had the Pepsi challenge, I think they're doing Pepsi or Coke or something like that. So it'd be fun. You know, I feel like if you could prove that to people and like actually like film it or something like that, I think that'd be like, okay, curiosity. So people would like would actually want to try it and see if it actually works. You are spot on. I wish I could walk you around our office. We are in an office complex where our biggest lab is up here in Davis. And if you walk around the halls right now, you'll see big posters that say, come take our sweet tea challenge. <laughs> and we're doing blind taste testing against other products and just asking people to rate them. But we are also doing that actually with chefs on a video format where we don't control what they say. We're just sending out our teas and we're giving them blind taste tests and we're letting them rank them and share them and then post it. You'll actually see those go live in June. So couldn't agree more, especially when you're in food. As cool of all the tools of digital are today, tasting is still believing when it comes to food and particularly good taste. So a huge part of what we've tried to do is take kind of that Pepsi challenge idea, which you were spot on to connect to this, and bring it into 2023 and leverage our digital tools. So in a lot of places, we're sending off blind tasting test kits to different parts of the country, including several to the UK, because there's some great chef shows where they're willing to actually do a, a blind taste test and video it and share their reactions. So we're really excited about it. Yeah, I guess the key was making sure what you do ask them to video it, like the first taste, that way you can get it actually filmed, because it, it would be interesting. You know, obviously, you're not telling them to say anything. Totally. I'm also a big believer. I mean, we're really confident about what oobly sweet proteins taste like. We want to take the taste challenge because we want people to do the head to head. When you look at foods, there's a million different segments, we're kind of spoiled consumers today, right? Everybody has their personal preference of how they like their crust of pizza, and there's 400 different ways to do it, right? So different products will have different preferences. But I've spent a long time building authority and credibility and marketing to consumers. And one of the most important axioms that I have learned in my experience with long-term success is credibility requires honesty. And honesty is usually much better communicated when you don't offer only perfect examples. So the fact that we don't always get a perfect rating adds to the credibility of people wanting to try it. And I'll stand by four out of five people loving it every time. That's actually one of the powers too, is being really comfortable with letting the taste tests be real and letting people give us their honest feedback. Even though I will say as the CEO, let alone as my two founders that have toiled away for now seven and a half years building the R&D, you never want anybody not to love it. The goal is actually to get people to try it, experience it, share it, and do it in an authentic way, which requires not everyone telling you exactly what you want to hear every time you do it. So it's fun. It's fun. But we're in the middle of that right now. So I'm excited to share those. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if I go on Amazon and look at anything, if I see anything above 4.8 or almost like all fives, I don't even trust it anymore. You know, I think we've all learned as consumers. If you told me five out of five people love it, we're like bullshit and I'm not going to order it. But Four out of five sounds very reasonable because no matter what, even if they give you a one out of five, there's always going to be some haters, but there's no way everyone always likes everything. And like you said, yeah, you're scientists. 
I mean, I trust you and I don't even know you. They spent seven years doing it. They're not doing it to just mess it up. And I'm just here to waste money. Like they really want to make something good. So it's worth a try. For sure. For sure. And I think statistically, I think the last time I looked at these stats, which is probably a year old, the most believable overall ratings, if you just look at like a ratings and review example, like your Amazon example, are when a brand or a company or a product is between 3.8 to 4.2. And that's exactly for the reason you just said. We all know that everybody doesn't see the world exactly the same. And the more you're honest about that, the more credible it is. And that's all a really important part of what we're doing with Ubly and the long-term success strategy, because let's think about what we're doing. It's not like replacing sugar as a new concept, right? In the last 20 years, look at all the different sugar alternatives that are out there. But we also know now there's about 50 forms of sugar that will hit our label. And if you survey most consumers, here's the data you'll find. 76% of consumers, largely because of the health problems that we know are statistically true, are actively seeking to reduce sugar. You look at the last 20 years of health results, it would suggest kind of a reverse set of activities, right? Because we're not generally improving on this. But that largely resides in the next set of data, which is when you ask them to identify of the different 50 types of sugar and 50 names and how they show up on labels, which they understand, they mostly don't understand it. So the net net is they've kind of lost their wayfinding and myself included. I mean, I do not exclude myself from this. The average person trying to navigate labels today has kind of lost their way in all the different ways we define what's good or bad. And so therefore, there's a lot of loss of trust. That's one of the reasons I get so excited about what we're doing, because every one of those alternatives that have been out there today up until now are what you and I would call, I take you back to your biology class. Those are small molecules which means when they come into your mouth, they hit your blood sugar system, they hit your bloodstream. That's why they affect your sugar spikes, sugar lows, as well as your gut microbiome. But proteins don't do that. And actually, consumers now, for a long time, really trusted proteins. And so this will be the first time we have a protein solution for your sweet tooth. And for me, that's a big opportunity because of the amount of noise and confusion in most of the alternatives out there to replace sugar which frankly just don't fit in the classification of protein because none of them have been proteins. And that's what's so exciting about what we're doing with sweet proteins. I don't think it's just me who struggles with it. It's like, even if I try to get something without sugar, it's like snuck in somehow, right? And it's like, <laughs> I mean, I'm just even curious because I've been, I've told my wife this and I always think it's like, for instance, Coke Zero, I think tastes so much better than Coke and I hate Diet Coke and I really don't like regular Coke, but why do I like Coke Zero? But I'm like, there, I can't believe there's zero sugar in that. I mean, could you give me any history lesson or let me know anything about maybe not even this specific product, but ones in general where you have all these energy drinks that say zero or whatever. So I always get the zero, but I'm like, mentally, it doesn't seem like it clicks to me that I'm like, it tastes better than the regular one to me. And I don't believe it, to be honest. I'm here with John Austinson. How are you doing today, John? Hey, Austin, doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, thank you for supporting the podcast. And I interviewed John on episode 250 of this very podcast. So you can hear more about John's story and how he grew Franbridge Consulting right here. But in the meantime, would you mind reminding our listeners what you do and what you could potentially help them with? 
Yeah, you know, we work with entrepreneurs and investors across the country, helping them get into business ownership through franchising. And when I say franchising, you likely think fast food, and yet there's so many other industries out there from home and property services to health and wellness, from kids, pets, the aging population, oil changes, all of these understandable cash flowing businesses that oftentimes are recession resistant. And 90% of our clients end up purchasing an opportunity they never thought about. We work with the largest brokerage in the country, over 600 different franchise companies. Having been a franchisor and franchisee myself, I'm very picky about which ones that we show to our clients, only the best of the best. The great thing, Austin, is it's entirely free to work with us. We're funded by the companies, very much like an executive search type model, so our clients never pay a nickel. And we do more deals for our clients than anybody else in the country. And what does a typical client look like for you? Two thirds of our clients would be looking to keep their day job. They're looking to get into business ownership, maybe as a side hustle, or maybe they're already a business owner and they can't get their full attention. We work with doctors, lawyers, existing business owners, corporate executives, really a wide array of backgrounds all around the country. As far as anyone who might be interested in your service, is there a best way for them to reach you? Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com. That's F-R-A-N bridgeconsulting.com. For all of your listeners, Austin, we'll also send them a copy of our new book, either audio or PDF version, or they can purchase it on Amazon. But I would love to share that. Our book is called Non-Food Franchise, and we've gotten great feedback since its release. If you're interested in taking a next step, you know, let my assistant Ashley know, and uh, she'll schedule a call, and we'll discuss your situation and what could be a good fit. Yeah. And I know you've already scheduled a few call with our listeners. Could you just tell them what that typically is like, like how long and if it's free for them to do? Yeah, we've had a great response from your listeners. Entirely free. Because of the caliber of folks that we work with, we cut to the chase. We usually spend 20 to 30 minutes on that first call. And then as the next step, that following week, we'll come to them with opportunities, usually around 10 or so in their market. They're available that check all the boxes and we talk them through those and then uh, make introductions to the ones that seem most intriguing to them. Well, that sounds awesome. And again, if someone was interested in scheduling a call, where's the best place for them to go ahead and sign up? Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com, F-R-A-N bridgeconsulting.com. And uh, we would love to engage. Any of the sweet products that Say Zero are using what we would consider some sort of sugar alternative. Today, none of them that are approved or available on the market are proteins. So that means they're all ones that affect your blood sugar levels. What's the challenge? And I think it's done with good intention. I think important is I don't want to demonize the sugar market because I actually think sugar is a really important crop. We actually use it in fermentation, ironically, right? And I actually applaud all the efforts that people are trying to do to figure out sugar alternatives because we do have this biological sort of conflict of we're designed to crave sugar, but now it's too available in our diets, right? So I think it comes from a good place. But unfortunately, the labeling is sort of its whole other agenda of how something gets classified, either as a sugar or not. And at the end of the day, what do we really care about if it's a sugar? If it's hitting your blood sugar system in a way that's contributing to diabetes and or affecting your gut microbiome, because that's what our bodies aren't handling the amounts we have today. And not all of them are in our current standard with the FDA meeting our food label requirements as they're actually, some are called sugar and some aren't. And so that's what you're running up against when you look at some of those different products. I am not a soda drinker. I haven't been for many years. So I don't know Coke Zero exactly, but I can assure you that if you and I want to take offline, I can walk you through the label and tell you the thing that can still drive your blood sugar levels up and down. They just might not be labeled today a sugar. So I'm feel vindicated if I brought my wife in here right now and asked her, this is exactly what I told her. I'm like, here's my thought process. And without knowing anything, I'm like, 
I bet they're getting around it, that it's still gonna affect me once I put it in my body, that it's gonna act like sugar. So even though it's not quote unquote 20 grams of sugar on the can, or usually there's like 30 to 50, I think, or something like that. But <laughs> I know that was yeah. very low. <laughs> like let's just say 50 or whatever, that I'm like, it might say zero, but once it hits my blood or whatever, it spikes it. So it's like, it's doing the exact same thing. Let me give you a good example. And then I'll tell you a little bit about the research. If we, Let's just take a no name brand orange soda and pretend it's 16 ounce. And I'm picking orange just because I happen to know the sugar ranges. They're all the same across the different brands. A typical 60 ounce, just visualize this, a 16 ounce bottle of soda, which is mostly what any of us would grab if we were on the go grabbing a drink, right? That typically will have anywhere from 68 to 73 grams of sugar. Said another way, imagine us putting a stack of 17 cubes of sugar up. That's what's in it. I can replace that because in drinks or in any beverages, the only role that sugar plays is sweetness. Unlike in another product, like in a chocolate bar, part of the role that sugar plays is bulking, like it makes up some of the thickness. In a drink, it's just sweetness. So I can replace that with sweet proteins with about 0.04 grams of protein, sweet proteins, and the rest is just water. So that's an amazing thing when you start to think about that because that's a ton of sugar in an average drink, right? And I'm giving you the full sugar one, not a zero. What I will tell you about the research on all the sugar and sugar alternatives, it's a hotly debated topic. And again, my goal isn't to demonize the efforts that are out there because I think a lot of them come from good places. But I can put a spotlight on what we know in the research and in the last particularly three to five years, but honestly, the last 10, starting with aspartame. The medical research has started to catch up with what we put into some of these ingredients, and it's not telling a very good story. At a minimum, it's definitely telling us that these sugar alternatives still increase and decrease our blood sugar levels and hit and complicate our gut microbiome. Why do you think we have an industry so full of prebiotic and probiotic today, right? Same issue. Now we're trying to deal with the symptom. And there's quite a few articles, the most recent of which, if you didn't see it, it came out just a few months ago. It's the first one in the U.S. that came out from an independent health clinic, the Cleveland Health Clinic, a very respected one, that has really challenged the impact of erythritol. And erythritol is often used in combination with some of the natural sweetener alternatives like a stevia or a monk fruit to help get the sweetness. And what they found is people that were already predisposed to pre-diabetic conditions are having higher incidence of heart attacks and strokes. And again, there's debates all around the aisle on all of these topics, but the research is fairly consistent and growing that a lot of what we're trying to avoid with sugar is still happening with sugar alternatives. It just might be a lower calorie. So I think the question for all of us is to say, is the objective of reducing sugar to have zero calories? Is calorie the definition of health or is it how what you're putting in your body, your body handles? And I think the latter is what we know is true in most of the diabetic issues. And here's a couple of interesting stats. In the U.S., we are about 35 to 40% pre-diabetic. You think of countries, I think of countries, I won't say you, of like Japan as being particularly healthy diets. They're in a modern day today, they're up to about 20% pre-diabetic. Latin America, India are very much the same statistics as the U.S., if not slightly higher. But the really staggering one is, and I think about this a lot, I've been around enough decades with work and innovation and health to say when I was a kid, it was pretty rare to see a, what we would have said is a chubby or an at-risk long-term pre-diabetic young kid. And today, statistically, post-COVID, our adolescent pre-diabetic and diabetic is over 20%. 
And that's a staggering increase even in North America. Again, I say all this with the spirit of our goal with Oobly is to just give you delicious, craveable products that actually are powered by sweet proteins and therefore they're awesome for your health and they're also good for the climate. So they're not going to be a negative impact to our food supply. And I don't want people to feel guilty because it's biologically healthy and normal to crave sugar. (laughs) So the fact that we love it is just basic humanity. So there shouldn't be any shame in it. The reality is it does have a health impact and a climate impact. And both of those are things that we can actually potentially address while still giving our great sweet tooth what it wants. And that's where we think sweet proteins come in. Yeah, I I totally understand. I don't think you're demonizing or anything like that. I think because we all want to live better. If your product really does work, right? People want to believe in that. Like, I want to believe in it as far as like, okay, can I actually have something that's not nearly as bad for me? And like you're saying, that's different. So I I guess the good thing is on your side is that, yeah, you have all these people that are interested and want to believe in the product and I guess just try it out. So I guess if people were like looking at, is the best way for them to actually just go to your website or is there other ways that they'll be able to eventually find it so they can actually even try it out themselves? Yeah, for sure. Tasting is believing. And I encourage everyone to put us to the test, right? Taste products that are sweetened with sweet proteins. The best way today is at oobli.com. But that's because we just launched. You can find us in a few places. Today, there's a retail chain called Showfields. They have a location in Brooklyn, in Georgetown, in Miami, in LA. You'll find us there this summer. You'll see us in Pop-Up Grocer in New York. That's rolling out through eight Nordstrom's through the East Coast to California. And we have about 50 retailers picking up the teas in LA this summer, and they'll all be listed on our website when we go live. So we are just in the first phase of releasing them. That's really our B2C, right? Because what we're building with our sweet protein platform is kind of a toolkit of sweet proteins for people to make great new products like our Oobly products or even rehabilitate existing products. So While we're working on those great consumer products and making them available for consumers to taste, we're also working with some of your favorite companies, brands, and products, and we'll announce some of those rehabilitated products starting next fall. So I would encourage everybody to say is sign up and be in the know at our oobly.com mailing list because we're going to be announcing partnerships and new products that will be our own products as well as other people's products. And it'll be a pretty regular stream of announcements for the next few years. So we're excited about that. I just can't share those new names yet. So what made you want to actually join Oobly? Did you do the taste challenge? We didn't actually have products when I joined. So I had to take a bit of a leap of faith. But as I mentioned, I've sort of spent my career on this quest of using technology to unlock big consumer problems focused on healthy living. So that's always been my journey. And I was working in healthcare tech helping grow a really rapid sort of growth company to try to challenge our health insurance and healthcare model. And what I was frustrated with, I was chief consumer officer, I was working for a founder in that instance, is that the more I sat on top of all the consumer data, I realized once you're already in our healthcare system, it's pretty reactive. There's not much room for preventative. And I started to get this big craving because I could see all the numbers in particularly diabetes, and I could see sort of the growth and really the growing list of medication that goes along with that. And I was like, there has to be people working at a technology level to try to actually change what's driving this ratio in our diets. And so the category that I'm in, and I would consider Oobly today, is is an active investor category that some people refer to as food tech. It's coming out of Synbio or biotech. 
but it's also known for those that are sort of trying to do a impact business as food as medicine. I started looking only at companies that were in that. And most of them, if you look today, are focused on replacing meat or replacing dairy for a variety of reasons, for planet and climate, for animal activism rights, for health reasons. It's a variety of reasons. And I'm interested in those, but they weren't quite scratching the itch for me of tackling some of the health issues that I was also interested in, not just focusing on climate, which I think is hugely important. But I always tell all my employees, listen, if almost 40 to 50% of our population is suboptimal health, we're not going to tackle big problems like climate. So we have to tackle them together and we have to figure out how to give better health why we do it because we know a healthy body is a more productive body and able to accomplish more. So I'm a big believer that doing these in parallel is sort of the why I came to Oobly. So I met the founders who are incredible. Jason, our CTO, is the co-founder who's very much my active partner. And I listened to the technology, got really excited about finding out what it was, was amazed at what they'd been able to break through. And then I basically did exactly what you just said. And I said, what can I taste? What can I taste? They didn't have a lot yet because they're very much on the science side. They hadn't done a lot of the consumer. And that's why they were looking for somebody like me. So I said, well, let's put a series of product development applications together and let's do some taste testing. And based on that, we can find out if this makes sense to really bring to the consumer market. And once we did that, I was so amazed by the results. I said, absolutely, I'll come over and take over this role. We have to unlock this and make this available for consumers. So taste tests was the mechanism, but they actually were very awesome with me and let me kind of design that in evaluating the company. And then we got super excited about what it can do. And when did you say we actually like found out about these proteins as far as like, I forget exactly what the protein is called and whatnot. Yeah. Can you give me a little history lesson on that? Yeah. Sweet proteins as sort of a category, there are several, like our first one comes from the oobly fruit, hence the inspiration for the name. Other ones come from the katampe fruit. There are different fruits, fruits and berries found in places like West Africa and Southeast Asia. They were found by academic researchers, probably, don't quote me exactly, but about 20 years ago, right? Give or take five years. But when academics are researching them, they can only get what's accessible in nature. And these are really hard to reach places that these tiny little fruits and berries grow. And then they make one tiny little protein. So that's also why thinking about ever taking these and making them an agricultural solution would be a climate disaster. It would be sweet proteins for the very elite because they would be so expensive to grow in that way. And so What's happened that's changed, why we've kind of known about this at a research level, that it would apes and gorillas love to climb and eat these things. It didn't make any sense because the moment they ate them, they didn't get energy and they just made all this sort of effort to go eat them is because they thought that they were tasting sugar. And that led to this research, which is kind of exciting and has lots of interesting applications. But they couldn't really do anything with it because they couldn't get enough and they couldn't produce it. So you've probably heard of this thing in biotech called CRISPR and some of what it's enabling and what we call synthetic bio today, where we can actually use technology to understand so much more of the DNA of everything that the natural world has given us, and we're unlocking that. This is a really good example of that in precision fermentation. We take the DNA from those plants and berries, and then we teach our broth. Imagine that we're brewing beer. There's a broth or a yeast in it. We teach that broth how to produce that protein. And then we filter it at the end. So you only have the protein, which is an identical protein to what you'd find in nature, but we didn't grow it. We brewed it. And that's very different. And that's what we're doing with precision fermentation. That's what pretty much everybody's doing with precision fermentation. You probably know a lot of the brands like Impossible Foods doing it in meat or Beyond Meat or what people are doing in 
cultured dairy, most of that is done with precision fermentation. And the best example, I would say, of using in some ways a very old technology, because we've been making things like wine, cheese, and beer forever, we're just now using technology to be able to take it to a different level to also brew things we couldn't before brew. And that's what we're doing with sweet proteins. So I've never heard of an oogly fruit. It's spelled U-G-L-I. And I guess they're saying it's the same as a tangelo. So if anyone's heard that, but the one that I'm just looking at, it says it was in Jamaica. So I don't know if that's one that they necessarily found or... I think you might have the wrong one. It's Oobly, O-U-B-L-I. Our name is inspired, but not spelled like it. And it's with a B, not a G. And it's from West Africa. It's the Oobly fruit protein. Oh, okay. These, yeah, all these are close. I guess, yeah, yeah. I, I never heard of that one either. <laughs> O-U-B-L-I fruit tree. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And you would only know it if you were in those small villages in West Africa. Part of the reason why we love the name and we were inspired by it with a made-up version of it for our own company name is because the local villagers that have ever had a chance to eat it, because it's in these hard-to-reach places and not very many places and nobody can really grow it, is oubli, which is French, the O-U-B-L-I, is a French word that means forgetfulness. And the colloquial sort of story that villagers we learned that would refer to this is it's so sweet they forget their mother's milk. That's sort of the heritage of it at a very local level. But it doesn't have a long history of documented use because it hasn't been available. We're the first company that's ever actually producing oubli such that you could use it as an ingredient to actually make products at scale let alone ones that could be affordable for somebody other than just the elite. Because if you did agriculturally grow it, you could, but it would be a very, very, very expensive in every form of expensive crop. You're in San Francisco, right? Yep. I mean, do y'all grow any of it like in California? Like even if it's a hundred trees? Because I was just wondering, I mean, do you extract it from wherever it was in Africa and bring it back? I'm just kind of curious like how this happened. Believe it or not, the way precision fermentation works and what we've learned with sort of this advent of SynBio is we don't really have an agricultural step anymore. That all comes from the research. So there's not actually a plant step. We know the DNA makeup of the plant and we've mimicked the DNA makeup. It's an identical DNA to the plant, but we actually brew it. So the original research all came from the plants because that's how we understand what's out in nature. But the DNA or the chromosome sequence of the protein is actually mimicked and brewed in precision fermentation. And when they do that DNA sequence, even the first, I'm just curious, even the first time, like how they did it at first, you know, I I imagine you didn't do it now, but I thought maybe you needed some type of stepping stone to get to where you are today. I was just curious even how they figured it out the first time. Did they just go over there and they, they figured out what the DNA is and then they come back to San Francisco and they're like, hey, I can make this and brew it. I don't know if you have a little bit more history. I do. I do. It's more that 20 some odd years ago, academic research started records about what they learned, including defining the DNA sequence, which is kind of like code. Think of it like computer program code. So once you know the code, that's the code in nature that defines that protein and makes that protein. That's all got written records. Technically, once we had the ability to take written records through things like CRISPR gave us as a tool in SynBio, We don't actually have to go get the plant to do that. We have the code of how to actually mimic it. Now, the first versions of anybody doing precision fermentation, they often did plant. And actually, seven years ago when Oobly was just being started, and at the time the company was called Miraculix, they were growing various sweet proteins. Oobly wasn't one of them. They were growing the Miracle Berry, and they were growing the Katamfe fruit. And they were looking at 
maybe different ways that they might be able to scale this, not just precision fermentation. They were looking at the transmutation for growth on different plants. They were looking at different types of growing models. And what they quickly figured out is that growing any of them would be probably climate limiting and adding to the problem that we're all trying to solve, which is quit raiding precious ecosystems with things we need to leave in them so that the world's air can breathe. And none of them would get to an efficient enough scale that you could get at a global solution. So, you know, if you think about it, there's sort of three big problems for me to solve, right? If our goal at the highest level is to bend the global health curve, build it, that means we have to have mass scale, right? It has to be something that we can, we don't just produce awesome products and awesome products everyone loves, but we make it available that everybody can rehabilitate their products that way. Well, that means we have to produce a lot, even though, as I said to you, one protein does a lot more than any cube of sugar, right? It's got a great weight for weight because sweet proteins are about 500 to 5,000 times sweeter on a weight-weight basis than sugar. So you get a lot from a little, but I have to be able to make a lot of it. And then I have to be able to make it affordable to make it a viable choice to change food because you look at most of your food today and the things we're talking about replacing are relatively commodity prices, right? And if I don't do those two things, why I'm then also satisfying what a consumer wants for taste, I will have niche development and niche adoption, both of which might be cool and they might be neat businesses, but they're not going to be able to bend the global health curve if we can't make it available to the masses. The masses are where we actually get at mass change that can affect either health or climate. And otherwise, we might have a novel application that is cool and interesting and we call it, when you look at the demographics today, there's lots of health among the wealthy, and we call it the wealthness factor. <laughs> we have our new wealthness trend at the 1%. And it's awesome. They have every resource in the world. They can do the early adoption of things. It's a good place for discovery. But even if we make it for all of them at 1% of the population, it can never be enough to change sort of macro realities like global climate issues or global health trends. And we're interested in doing all three. You said miracle fruit, and then you said another fruit, I think, right after that? Katamfe fruit. The katamfe fruit, it is the plant of origin for another sweet protein that has been documented. We've done a bunch of research on it. It's one of the ones on our platform. It's called thaumatin. The protein is actually, the scientific name is thaumatin. You've told me about four fruits I've never heard of in my whole life till this interview. You know, like it's kind of, so maybe I'm figuring out why it took so long. If I don't know that these are native in California or if they're native in the U.S., any of them. They're none are native in the U.S. There's about 20 known sweet proteins today. What's really exciting, Austin, is we think there's probably way more than this we haven't discovered yet, right? So this is just what we've actually known. And what we found is they evolved alongside of human evolution out of places like West Africa and Southeast Asia, probably because they were trying to solve a very similar problem. The species of plants were trying to solve a problem which led to the evolution. And the problem was, I need to be sweet and attractive for apes and gorillas to climb and eat me because that's the only way my seed gets spread and my species populates, right? But I'm in a really tough ecosystem and to make photosynthesis of leaves is very calorically expensive. Protein, like protein works really efficiently in our body, works really efficiently for them. So I could use a protein if I made it a trickster protein to trick apes and gorillas, which was a dirty trick back then, right? Because they did this extra climbing to get to this barrier fruit, thinking, hmm, that 
tells me that's going to be not only delicious, but it's going to give me energy. And it was delicious, but it didn't give them energy. Fast forward to today, and that dirty trick to apes and gorillas is the perfect solution for humans, right? Which is give me the taste I'm looking for, but move through my body differently. Cool, huh? Well, yes, yeah, coming around of why, I'm not saying it took forever to figure this out, right? But I, yeah, if none of these are native here and you have, I don't even know the first person who started looking at it, but if you have any PhDs who are studying, if you have to go to West Africa or, or Southeast Asia, right, it's going to make it so much harder to do experiments or even figure this out. Yeah. And I think that's one of the many good examples. I mean, that's why I get so excited when you think about, we've talked about this a little bit, my career of the fun of it. I am an applied technologist. I'm not a technologist by training. I'm a consumer brand decision sciences marketer by training who has been in love with looking at problems around health and then figuring out scale solutions for them. It just so happens that most of them have been being unlocked with technology across a lot of industries. But what we see in biotech or SynBio today is a really good example. And the reason is it's making the world very small. Suddenly, we can take all these lessons from all these different places in the world and put them together in one lab and say, oh, so this could be this. And that's what I get most excited about. I think that's why I've stayed so in love with that intersection of healthy living and technology is it is a really great case study of the best of sort of nature and technology coming together to solve problems. Well, thank you for all the details. and. History, like you said, I spent quite a time on it because I've never, I guess, learned so much. And so, you know, as far as at least fruit and whatnot. Well, that's fun. I love your questions. Quite fascinating. I'm sure everyone else is. Well, if they're not, at least I'm interested. So, <laughs> well, I love your questions. And I know one of the things you and I talked about is what's one of the complexities in this entrepreneurial venture where I've had many entrepreneurial ventures. And one of them is, is think about everything we just talked about. It's a lot of science, it's a lot of complexity, right? But at the end of the day, how am I going to win with consumers? product tastes good, right? So balancing that, hey, what is this cool journey that this amazing team of scientists, even long before the founders here, but even the team that was here before me, and sort of extracting out what's so important about it, there's a ton of complexity in it, but most of the people aren't going to know any of that nor even care much about it. They just want great tasting food. If I can give them great tasting food that is affordable and has the bonus of it's better for their body in game-changing ways they can actually trust, let alone maybe also even better for the planet, those will be the opportunities when I get to tell them that. And that is one of the great complexities of bringing the best of technology into consumer goods today because we don't have huge attention spans or patience for introduction of things that are $4 products, right? Even though we might mass consume large amounts of them all the time. And it's really, really that I think is the challenge, particularly in a world where there's a growing amount of skepticism around trust and marketing and messaging and labeling, for example, like what we talked about in your Coke Zero example. And when you take the DNA sequence and you put it, you said you're brewing it basically. Can you walk us through like how big are these tanks? Basically, you took old brewery and kind of like just visually, <laughs> what, what can you tell me like that maybe people can visualize of this step process of now we've kind of learned the history and just maybe give us a little bit more details on that? Yeah. Well, we start at the bench top. So when we figure out how to teach our yeast to create the protein we're working on, let's say it's the oobly fruit protein, right? It could be any one of them. Each one, we work with different yeast or a different sort of brew to figure out how to make it grow. And we're always figuring out that path on the bench, which is three liters at a time. 
when we're producing it for scale, and we've just completed tech transfers for producing our proteins for the first one that we have regulatory approval on, we're running anywhere from 15,000 liters to 30,000 liters, and we're producing those in three different countries today on two continents. I'm here with Megan Bennett. How's it going, Megan? It is going great. How's my favorite podcast host and the most handsome young man? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for stating the obvious, Megan. But we're here to talk about you and your company, Light Years Ahead. I interviewed Megan on episode 177 of this very podcast, and she helped all of our Patreon members on Group Call 3. So you can hear more about Megan and how she helped our Patreon members there as well. So would you mind telling us what you do and how you could help our listeners, Megan? Yes. So my agency is Light Years Ahead, and we're boutique, but we're a national PR firm. We're women-owned, and we focus on emerging brands, experts, and services in the consumer lifestyle space. We're based throughout the U.S. We're in New York, Kansas City, L.A., and Dallas. And we really specialize in maximizing media exposure for brands and experts, which can then create more sales and brand awareness and influence buying decisions. Our clients range everything from small startups looking to make a name for themselves to large brands that are trying to become relevant again. My agency, Light Years Ahead, we target the very top editors, writers, and producers across all different media outlets. And we've been doing this for over 20 years, which has earned us a very strong reputation with the top media, with outlets like BuzzFeed, Today Show, Good Morning America, Refinery29, Pop Sugar, Forbes, and many more. We can help you grow your brand into a household name. Well, that sounds awesome. So if someone might be interested in your service, what's the best way for them to reach you? Oh, the best way to reach out is to email me at Megan, M-E-G-A-N, at lightyearsahead.com. That's Megan at lightyearsahead.com. Or you can check out our services and capabilities at lightyearsahead.com, our website. And I know you've helped a few of our past guests as well with their PR, and they do sing your praises. So hopefully it can help some of our listeners as well. Absolutely. And we love working with your listeners and entrepreneurs who are really passionate about what they're doing. And this is what we want to offer your listeners. The first five listeners that schedule a call with us to develop a PR campaign will receive $500 off their first month of services with us. It's a great deal. Awesome. And one more time, what's the best place for them to reach you to take you up on that offer? You can reach me at Megan at lightyearsahead.com or check out our website at lightyearsahead.com or you can go to our Instagram page at L-Y-A-P-R. I guess, how big is these brewery thing? I know you said an ounce or whatever it is, fluid. I guess if I'm thinking height and width of how big this brewery process is. I'm talking about the tanks that sit within these environments. They're 15,000 liter to 30,000 liter. So yeah, but how about diameter? Like I guess feet hmm, I'm not. or height. So eventually when we have more products that are using this and we're producing more, I'll give you an analogy that might help ground it. Cause I was just looking at a new facility in Mexico that we're doing some early testing with and we like a lot. They have 180,000 liters. Those are about six stories tall. And about, I'm not the scientist, so I'm not as good at my leaders to cubic square translation, but it's probably about 30 feet wide, like if you walked it from one side to another and about six stories high. That's how big a tank is. Yeah, I would have never thought six stories high, but how many leaders are you doing right now? So those are about 180,000 and our biggest ones today are 30,000. Okay. So the biggest ones that you have, one, two, 30,000 liters to gallons. So that says 8,000 gallons. Yep. 
So everyone can envision a gallon of milk. So 8,000 of those. No, that's good translation. That's great. I will tell you, once we're doing it over about five to 10,000, we can do it at any size. So we could also be in the 180,000 liter tanks. We just need a big enough product line that it's worth making that much with our run. Because when you go up in size after a certain size, you've already locked in sort of how much it produces for how much you brew. And then it's just how much you need, right? So it's more of a cost model. And that's why we're actually producing in three countries today, because we can produce quite a bit in a lot of different ways. And now we're rolling it out for products. But as I, I mentioned it earlier, and it's probably worth emphasizing, there is a little magic, well, I would say additional magic, because there's already magic with sweet proteins. And that is that a little does go a very long way. So let's say that oobly fruit sweet protein, the scientific term that is the protein is called brazine. And on a weight-for-weight -weight basis versus sugar or sucralose, right, it's 500 to 2,000 times sweeter depending on how you brew it. So for every one ounce of sugar, you need one five-hundredth to one two-thousandth of that of sweet protein to get the same sweetness. So you also get a, a lot. And across the different sweet proteins, the oobly fruit sweet protein is one of the lower intense multiples. Some of them are up to four and 5,000 times sweeter than sucralose. So they're each different. They also play slightly different roles in the toolkit of sweetness. So I'm super excited about all of them. We jokingly say it's kind of like loving our children. You love them all. But each sweet protein yeah. as they evolved. <laughs> well, but they do different things. That's for sure. So they're about 60% the same from what we can tell in all the research, meaning the homology of the protein is the same. But they're about 30 to 40% different. And how that matters when we're doing innovation around product innovation and sort of how we're getting at solutions for consumers is it shows up in things like maybe some are more heat stable, some are less heat stable, some can handle more pH or have more intrinsic pH. So then they end up being different tools in the toolkit when you're formulating with product. So that's pretty interesting. And we're still, we're very advanced in this in terms of sweet proteins, because nobody else has been able to really produce them like us and also go through regulatory process and also get regulatory approvals on them. But we're still in the early phases because we only have a handful of them that we're actually actively making products with. And there are, like I said, a couple dozen known out there. So there's still lots to learn. We're excited about it. And the tanks that you were saying, like I said earlier, was about 8,000 gallons. So someone could picture that. But I did also put in another tab. I was waiting when you're saying the 180,000 liter one, just for perspective, that's almost, that's 48,000 gallons. So 8,000 to 48,000 gallons, if you, anyone wants to visualize, okay, where you are now and where you could go. And, and it makes sense. Yeah. After you start brewing it, it doesn't really matter after a certain point. I guess you want to put as much as you can inside there, as long as you have the demand to make it, right? That's right. That's right. There are very, very, very big fermentation capabilities. And we've been using as a world producing things for a long time, those type of fermentation tanks we've been using for a long time for a lot of different products, we're just introducing them now to whole new categories now that we have new tools in biotechnology. And that's what we're at the intersection of, which is super fun. I wish I had my CTO, Jason Ryder and founder on here. He's an awesome guy. And he's much more nimble than me as a biomanufacturing engineer at translating for you all the comparative sizes, because he's built a lot of those. He talks a lot about I believe it's an 800,000 liter tank he built in Brotas in Brazil earlier in his career. So yeah, he's worked a lot around all those different tanks and that's more his specialty than mine. 
totally understandable. But we have him on here, then he just make me, you know, sound dumb. So I need someone to <laughs> dumb it down for me, if you don't mind. I'm the non-scientist giving you the science, so take that with a grain of salt. But yeah, no, we're really excited about it. It's it's pretty cool technology, and it's amazing innovation that we're working on. I won't take it with a grain of sugar, that's for sure. But I am wondering, you said you have multiple factories in different continents or countries. Could you tell us where those are located? I can. We do our contract manufacturing. We don't own them. So we own our labs, right? So we do a lot at benchtop scale that's all proprietary. But once we've locked in a certain approach. And real quick, you said this earlier, what, what do you mean benchtop scale? It means when we figure it all out, we have a big R&D team. When you asked me earlier, this 50 employees, about 40 of them are scientists and they're in our labs. And they're in our labs doing the science of figuring out how any one protein we're going to make scale up and then scale up efficiently to be part of the solution for ingredients or consumer products, right? And that's what they're working on. Once we have the scale-up model, we'll take it out to places that just own the equipment. They have much bigger tanks than us. And then depending on which place we are is why we'll be in different size tanks. There'll be tanks anywhere from 5,000 to 800,000 in size, depending on the facilities and what we need. Today, the U.S. has very, very large ones. You know, people that have large fermentation tanks are companies like Cargill. But they generally don't make themselves available to growth companies. They kind of do their own business that way. So in the U.S., in North America, we mostly have smaller scale built around our universities that is a great place when we come out of our own labs to do a slightly bigger scale, let's say 100 liters to 1,000 liters, right? And we can do a lot of that testing in facilities around the U.S. that are often facilities that have academic associations. Once we want to get to kind of that mid-tier where we can be, let's say, 5,000 to 15,000, there's just some countries that have more infrastructure on that and specialize in that. Today, we're working both in Mexico and in Belgium. I'm assuming you're making product there too. So when you're rolling out these new chocolate bars and whatever you do with teas and whatever comes next in the product line, are you doing it simultaneously in all these countries? No, we're sort of a producer of two things, right? We have the R&D of the sweet proteins, and then we produce sweet proteins, but then we produce consumer goods. And today, our proteins are only regulated in the U.S. because each protein has to go through its own regulatory process in every country. And so we have to pick where we start. And one of the biggest consumer goods markets, of course, is the U.S., and we're here. So where we're manufacturing our end products, like a chocolate bar, like a tea, is in the U.S., but we bring our protein wherever we produced it in. Sometimes we've made it here, sometimes in Europe, sometimes in Latin America. But we're always making our products, our end consumer products here, at least for now. As we're rolling those out with partners, I can assure you that we're looking at partners and products where we'll bring sweet protein-powered products throughout the world. But it's a longer process because every protein has to go through a regulatory approval because there's not a long history of documented use in every country. But when, let's say the one in Belgium, like I, I can get my mind around Mexico, maybe you're doing that because labor costs, whatever, maybe that's not true. I'm not sure. But even like say Belgium, if you're making the protein there, then bring it back here and making the actual product. What's the benefit of doing that in Belgium versus doing that in the US or, or Mexico? Biotechnology in some ways is a big industry, in some ways a small. There's an ecosystem of skills and of scale. And Europe has a lot of great skills. 
at the mid-scale, whereas we in the U.S. have a lot of really great early-stage innovation and then a lot of really big scale, but we don't have a lot in the middle. So, And it's just the way the business models work. It's kind of who funds those types of businesses that have what we call contract resources available that allow you to come in, let's say, six times a year and run production, but you're not running every day all year long. So it's a little bit more to do just with how different countries have structured different parts of different industries. And we'll take advantage of all of that. For us, keep in mind, if one protein is, let's just say, 1,000 times sweeter than sugar, imagine I need 100 pounds of sugar, or let's say I need 1,000 pounds of sugar. I only need a pound, right? So what I'm shipping back and forth as the end product is relatively small. Okay. Yeah. I didn't think about it. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, for them ship it. So it doesn't really matter if it costs, if it weighs that little one pound package versus a half a car. Exactly. Your question's good though. And it's why it wouldn't make sense for me to make my end products there, right? My teas or my chocolate bars. I'm going to make those where I'm going to sell them <laughs> at least at our stage, right? You have to be big, big, big in the world to say, I'm going to make those in one place in the world and ship them all throughout the world. For now at our stage, we would make them where we are. But the protein's a little bit different and the value of skills and the right size tanks and the right ability to access it when we want. Honestly, we'll use resources all over the world for that. I guess maybe these tanks are more specialized than I was thinking originally, if you have to go to Belgium and find someone to help you. They are. They are. I love the analogy that you gave, but it's not the same. <laughs> we do use fermentation, but it's, it's what some people, there's a whole bunch of names for it, but like to call precision fermentation. So it's a different technology environment than a brewery. It's just very similar in concept, but it's got a different level of data and precision. It's a little closer to what you might see in the pharmaceutical world than you would see in actually most craft brewing, but it's actually brewing. It's still kind of the same concept, but the actual physical plants are, I would say, more like walking into a medical center. <laughs> just because of visualization, you know, in my head, now I know... I've got a better thought process versus like, yeah, even local breweries, they let you walk around out back or distilleries or, you know, I mean, I know there's some process if I'm brewing something, beer, my own beer or something like that. But I guess maybe if I'm thinking of what the way you're brewing it, there's way more tech involved or I guess scanning and all that other type of stuff that I should be visualizing. There's a lot of tech. One of the things that I love the most, I've had this cool career where I've surrounded myself with complex problems and, and solutions that kind of boil down to simple adoption by consumers, which we both know, quote, simple, it's never simple, but how do you make it simple? But when you're working with complex problems, you're also working with some really educated, smart, talented teams. And there's very few people in my environment now that aren't PhDs and aren't specialists in all sorts of, from bioengineering to bioprocessing to strain engineering to strain development. Those are all the skills that are required to do the work behind what then becomes precision fermentation. So you're talking about pretty skilled workforces. I think we went in so much detail. Maybe we can jump into your story of how you got to here. Of course. No, no, it's good. I love your questions. It's fun. So my story, I would say, I, I kind of always like to start back with the kid I was because it probably informed the adult I am more than I realized. You know, I don't know if you ever know that when you're going through the steps, but when you look back, you realize it. So... I'm a small town kid from Bozeman, Montana. My dad had a college degree, but he's the only person in a generation ahead of me in our large families that did. And he was an accountant by training, but 
was very much an entrepreneur. And when I look back, I sort of know the blueprint I got from my dad. And as he was changing the generation that he raised by his example, which was to leverage education, but to be willing to keep looking at exciting, disruptive ways to build your career. And so he was, I guess, by all accounts, you could say, willing to take risks. And I I put that in the context of imagine this quickly, because it's always a good humor. My dad's been gone for a couple decades. I wish he could hear this because he'd get a kick out of it. And he'd love what I'm doing with Ubli Sweet Proteins. But my dad was also the father of nine kids. And I'm one of those. And Five of my siblings are adopted and four are biological. So my parents were also kind of, you could say, entrepreneurial in every way, right? And in some ways that might say it was somebody who would have taken less risks, right? Because they had a lot of mouths to feed (laughs) and a big family. But the mantra in my house was always be interested in the world. Think of the world, not just your backyard and get out there and make an impact. And that's just how I was raised. So I went to a small liberal arts college in Oregon, which was pretty typical for a kid like me in Montana, who was a really good student, and they paid me to come there. But we didn't think a lot about how to get on what track for what school, and we kind of got recruited. And it happened to be a school that was in the backyard of Nike. And I, I share that with you because I was enough of a starving student from a big family in a small town that I waitressed at night. And one of my professors, I was a good student, figured out that I did that. And he was actually ran the economic advisory for their Korean manufacturing for Nike. And he convinced me to start working for them part time. And that was the beginning of me figuring out I was a business person as I translated over to be a Nike kid in college. And I got an offer, you know, I had got to choose when I went there. And I was in this, probably the softest part, I would say, of my healthy meets technology career, but I was in this kind of healthy living space and all about sports and activation. But I quickly realized in my career that I started out in brand and I helped launch women's, but believe it or not, when I went there, there wasn't a women's brand. Then I got sent overseas because they were trying to figure out how to be a global company, not just a US one with international sales. Then I came back and was part of the first team ever to try to look at a sustainability project to figure out how to take our used shoes and make them, rip them up and use them as a compositive and make them parts of the bottoms of most Nike shoes today. And they actually reuse a lot of that to actually build better soles. And so I started my first sustainability project. And so when I look at it across all those moves, I kept getting attracted even with that environment to go to where the disruption was, even at Nike, which was at the time disruptive and rapid and growing. But I was always moving to the tip of that spear, if you will. I went back, got a bunch of education, probably because I'm kind of closer to a first generation of education, though technically not true because my dad got that degree. And so I got a law degree and an MBA. I went to Northwestern, did big schools, and loved the exposure to it all. Probably got the law degree as much as anything else to kind of, my parents felt like if you're going to spend that kind of money for an education, you should have a profession. But I knew what the whole time I was there, I wanted to get where the innovation was. I didn't really have a word for it. I didn't really know technology was my appetite. And I probably wouldn't have even said healthy living, but I was smart enough to go to the Silicon Valley right from there. And that launched the next chapter of my career. I started out on the legal side as a corporate securities attorney representing venture capitalists and growth companies and did everything from private financings to private placements and IPOs and M&As, but sat on boards. And a few years in, not surprisingly, got convinced by one of my investors to move back to the business side and help build those concepts. So I spent the next five years working with several companies where I was working for the founder, helping them unlock growth. And I was usually almost always, they took my skills that were very brand growth. How do you activate against the consumer? And they matched me with a technologist. And I like to think, Jason, my partner today, always tells me, 
he thinks the reason that always happened for me is because I'm legally trained, I kind of process information a lot like an engineer. So I'm really a good pair to the technologist. We use a similar language, even though I'm a consumer brand growth expert, I think and process it a lot like the dominant skill set on the technology side. And from there, sort of the path was born. I went from technology companies to building my own consumer retail company that was focused on healthy parenting products to I did a classic retail reorganization that was all about taking advantage of digital disintermediation and doing some slightly more turnaround than innovation work, but it's a very similar skill set. Then I came back into healthcare because I really wanted to get focused on growth in healthcare. And then, as you know, I went from healthcare and driving big disruption and growth. I joined a company around 200 million and left when we were about 4 billion. I said, I want to get more preventative and I want to be able to use consumer product brand chops a little bit more than you can in healthcare and started looking at this food as medicine category and got introduced to Oobly. And the rest is history. I feel lucky to say when I look across my almost 30 years now career that I have built a lot of growth, had big impact in categories that improve healthy living and almost always off the backs of leveraging technology. But I've not yet been at a point where I I feel like I am right now, which is I have the trifecta of what's important to me in this job, which is I can improve healthy living. I can deliver awesome, craveable, great consumer execution with great tasting products, and I can impact the climate all in one proposition. And for me, that's the best kind of thing because I'm not just building growth, but I'm building growth with impact. Well, thank you for that quick rundown. It's amazing how fast you went over 30 years and then how much time I spent on your last two years, huh? <laughs> I'm looking at it as far as your, like your resume. When you said you started your own company once upon a time before, like I guess in between this and Ubly, do you mind touching on that and maybe kind of what you learned during that business, what it was called, and just give us a little bit more detail on it? So I was a founder of a great company, a consumer brand company that we called sort of the new parent brand called Giggle. It was all about at the time, it sounds dated now in a way because it was all about sort of healthy living for new parents where you could, if you look at most of the juvenile product markets, most things we sell to parents are very kind of use and dispose, lots of plastic, lots of noise. And nobody had really at the time started to say, I want more things that last as they grow, that do more than one thing, that use healthier things like get away from bisphenol A before we regulated that you had to, right? So we moved into healthier plastics if we used a plastic that paid attention to developmental in every choice. And we sort of were assembling, I used to call it at the time, think kind of what Whole Foods was doing in that era, which was 15 plus years ago. We were the non-food aisle (laughs) for new parents. (laughs) And it was very much that first era of paying attention to how to do better products and solutions. And the the thing I'm most proud of in what we built, we were omni-channel out of the gate. We built some of the first ever omni-channel like registry, for instance, it was the first ever web-based for parents and kids, and it wasn't limited to any one brand. So it was kind of a universal. We got a lot of recognition as top 100 digital platform, digital apps, retailers during that time, which was great. But probably what I'm most proud of is I actually built and sourced our Giggle Better Basics product line, which was an amazing got certified fair trade line out of Egypt that was Better Baby Basics that removed all the toxins and formaldehyde that we tend to finish clothes with. And if you know much about the health of babies, when they're outside of the womb the first year, they're developing much in their immune system as they were inside the womb. And the biggest way that they breathe is their skin. So not 
clothing them full of stuff that absorbs into the skin that's toxin is a really important part of that kind of like giving them a good sleeping environment or good circulation environment. So this was all kind of my early health meets technology around baby. And we were really successful with the product line. We grew great success. We ultimately had about 850 doors if you count our store within stores with large partners. And we had an incredible brand. And we probably had a brand that punched above our size. Our product line was purchased. And then right when we started to expand our core direct business, which was omni-channel, it was right before the last crash. And so I have wins and losses from my first journey, all that I'm very proud of, actually. But I always tell people both sides of that. We navigated, if you think about the last big bank crash, most of the investors that were invested in business like mine that had a retail component really struggled through that time period. And in fact, my primary investors failed during that and I became a direct investment of their fund. And there was a lot of capital navigation to work through and I just wasn't that successful navigating through that period. I ultimately handed the reins to another CEO and decided that my 10 years there had been enough and they probably would do best with somebody who was going to be focused on a particular category of it. So I stayed for about a year in a transition and then decided I would go do my next build. And so that was my first big build, which again, like I said, we had a Giggle Better Basics product line that was hugely successful and a great brand, but I ultimately didn't have the big exit. My timing was really tough when we did our big expansion into that about the year before the big crash. Do you still wonder who all those people are visiting your website, but never convert and then just disappear? Discover the game-changing tool that top professionals are raving about, Pearl Diver. Pearl Diver is a cutting edge platform that provides in-depth visitor identification, enabling you to uncover valuable insights about your website visitors. By uncovering names, emails, company details, and more, Pearl Diver empowers you to turn anonymous traffic into high-quality leads. With Pearl Diver, you'll supercharge your marketing and sales strategy. Don't settle for guesswork. Dive deep into your visitor data and revolutionize your customer acquisition game. Ready to make waves? With Pearl Diver, you see actual people visiting your website. You get to know their names, emails, phones, titles, and company details. Never miss out on the opportunity to engage with your hottest leads. Pearl Diver matches your email interactions with identified website visitors, providing the insights you need to close your next deal. To learn more, visit pearldiver.io. That's P-E-A-R-L diver.io. See who's behind those clicks today and learn how to connect with them at pearldiver.io. Just looking at your LinkedIn profile it says 2004 to 2014, if that sounds about right. Yep. I mean, just because some people maybe listen now don't even know about the crash then. So was that startup? Have you been in San Francisco the whole time? I haven't. When I left graduate school, which was in Chicago, I came out to the Silicon Valley and then I worked for a series of growth companies before I founded the company, which I founded in San Francisco, Giggle. But when I brought on, at the time, that type of investment, which would have been around 2004 and five, there wasn't really venture investment and there wasn't social media yet, right? So you couldn't build a brand without having, even though you had e-commerce, you couldn't amplify the brand the same way we can today. So you really had to have the store component. Once you had a store component, there wasn't really venture capital. There was private equity. So my private equity I brought in was from New York, and we moved the headquarters to Manhattan. And I moved to Manhattan at that point in time. And I spent the next 14 years in Manhattan. 
and I built Giggle, did the wins and the losses of Giggle there. And then I actually moved to actually do the sort of what I'd say innovation and turnaround back at scale in retail with Asina from New York. But that ultimately is what moved me to Minneapolis, where I spent the last four years doing healthcare tech before coming back home, which I consider coming home, oobly coming home and back to California. You said moving around and whatnot. Did you have a family? I did. I wasn't a parent when I started it. I think I was really influenced by my family and the categories that I had been in. But I did become a parent. I'm, I'm a mother of an only child who's now off at college at UCLA. He's an awesome kid. But I had him the year I raised the private equity money in Giggle. And so I actually, he mostly was raised in Manhattan. Yeah, he did three years of high school in Minneapolis and then went off to UCLA. So. I don't know if you can expand at all about Giggle. I guess you kind of told us how it closed up. That's the reason I just wanted to focus on that when we're looking at your, you know, history. The wins and losses. Yeah. <laughs> it just helps everyone kind of understand. So I don't know if there's any other learning experiences you might be able to pass on to anyone who's listening. Yeah. I think at the risk of sounding trite, timing has a big role in I'll say life, because, yeah. everything, because, because it could be relationships where you found your loved one or, you know, so it, it does really matter. It's right. Well, I, I know there's always people that I'm really proud of the things I've built and I've built some great exits and some great values, but I've also hit some really difficult times and had some downturns. And one of them was during the time that probably would have been kind of my exit time for Giggle and my timing was terrible. So timing, I think, is just an advice I would give any entrepreneur to say, be humble about it, be aware of it. But there's also lessons that I would extract from that to say, there was several years before that, that I could have moved faster on some opportunities, but you always are trying to balance, am I building the best business I can build versus am I building to a transaction, right? And there's some natural tension in that because you don't get to build a best business if you don't have the right financing at the right time. So that's a mandate that you build those transactions. But the flip side is, is you don't want to just build transactions. You want to build this thing that can build that value. And there is no quick, here's how you do it and do it well. But I would say paying respect to that tension and being aware of it and knowing that they are both necessary parts of it is a really important lesson I would tell every entrepreneur. I would say the third is, is that know who you are and what's important to you in the definition of success and understand that particularly on the capital side, all investors are not the same. All types of investors are very different. And then you have to find your own fit. And then you have to look at it versus that time period. Arguably, what I went through during that time, you could say is what some might argue we're starting to go through again right now, right? Massive valuation changes over the last year. Obviously, most people think likely recession ahead, huge impact to what's going to happen on capital and valuations. And that won't be an equal distribution of impact to all types of investors or all categories or all stages of opportunity. So you have to understand not the headlines of tough economic times and tough recession, but understand how does that ladder through the capital markets and how does that map to the opportunity that you're building? And what adjustments do you have to make to make sure timing doesn't limit you, but can be your opportunity? And for me, that's a really, really important lesson that I'm a ton smarter today than I was during those years. I just am. I'm 10 years smarter in it. And I, I learned it with hard lessons. So if I would translate and say, what would I, I always get asked, what would you have done differently with Giggle? In some ways I was early. I would have loved social media to have been available because we were building a brand that probably had amplification that we could have done bigger without some of the retail expansion. And retail was getting expensive and complicated as we all know in the world. 
But that's like waving a wand and saying you'd like the sequence to be different. So I don't really regret any of those decisions. What I do regret is not making the call when it looked like the markets were shifting and it looked like what my investors thought was going to be important, not recognizing that I either had to pivot to accommodate that or I had to adjust how I was going to approach my capital and bring it in. And those are just really important decisions you need to be really upfront about. I used to always say, I think when I was in my first phases, probably more as a founder CEO than as just an entrepreneur in general, you own it a little differently when you're a founder, right? It's a little bit of your baby differently. Sometimes I think I wasn't comfortable enough to just have a healthy disagreement with investors at times rather than trying to give them a yes all the time. And sometimes it's better to have that disagreement earlier and settle it and make the adjustments in the business or make a decision if you're the best partners at that stage than it is to try to say yes when you don't think it's the right business step for you to take. And I've learned, I would say, I'd like to think that I've learned to have those difficult decisions or difficult discussions earlier and more often at this point in my career. Yeah. And I would say the one thing that you said is just to know yourself because what you're saying there is like, maybe you could have worked harder or done something that, I don't know, something within the business that I don't know, maybe put in more hours, but then it's like, also to me, I always just try to think about in the future when I'm 60, 70, 80, hopefully I get to be that age. It's like, am I going to regret if I'm spending 20 hours in a business every day and not spending time with your newborn son? Right. Or, you know, so it's really important to know that because at the end of the day, does the money matter if you never saw your son and never had a relationship with him? And I think most people would say it wouldn't be worth it. So I just keep that in mind because yeah, maybe some people they don't care as much about their family or they're single or they don't want that type of relationship or they don't have anything to worry about. So you can put those hours in, but maybe you're not building friendships and they don't care about that. So it's just making sure you understand where you are. Like look back at your week, look at back at your month. Am I doing things that later on in the future I'm going to regret or I'm going to be happy with? And am I okay with the sacrifice that I'm making to build a business or whatever else I'm trying to build? You know, Austin, you just hit on something that's so important and I am born an entrepreneur. I love to build. And I pride myself on being not just a good builder, but a good partner, whether that's to employees, founders, or my investors. But I also value that in the rest of my life. And it's funny, I've not shared this ever before from a media point of view, but I will share with you additional context that was going on for that time for me right heading into that crash is my dad, who was an entrepreneur and I was very close with, got sick and passed. And my husband was diagnosed with a complicated disease. And the combination of having a little kid, <laughs> that and my husband, why we were navigating the crash, 100% was part of the balancing decision for me to come and say, I think what we all think we can do to get through this next chapter, I'm not your best fit for, and I have to make a different decision. And I look back and think there are parts of ways I could have had that discussion a little bit earlier and a little bit more frequently and done better, but I don't think it was the wrong decision for me. I still think I made the right decisions. I just would say, as I look back now with a little bit more maturity, I wouldn't have waited quite as long to say, hey, you guys know all these things are going on, but let me tell you that I'm going to have to navigate some of this and make some different decisions during it. And I probably just should have been comfortable letting everybody know that as I was doing it rather than sort of letting it get to the point where I just sort of gave them the message. But to your point and to underscore that, <laughs> timing is everything. <laughs> and it's not just timing of your business and not just timing of the macroeconomic climate. It's timing of what else is happening in your life. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think it definitely helps anyone because unfortunately it's just not shared enough. So I, I appreciate you 
mentioning that because people could be going through divorce too, right? And like maybe it's a dirty divorce or, you know, like you're just, y'all hate each other and you're just dealing with that at home and you have to look for a new house and then you have to move across the country or, you know, yes, there's just so many other things that like, oh, well, I mean, usually if everything's working out in the business, luckily most of the other parts of your life are okay. But if other parts are like, you know, you're going through death of a parent and your loved one is in the hospital or being sick and then you have a small child. You only have so much time for work. There's only so much you can do. So it's a juggle. It's a juggle. Thank you for sharing that. So absolutely. But there is a really important lesson in that, which is, and I think you said it best know who you are, but also put words to it, just like you would advise your employees or your kid or anybody else. Put words to it to all the constituents, regardless of what you think your role is supposed to be with them. Your job, as, a, as particularly as an entrepreneur, But even as a founder or a CEO is not always to say yes or not always to be agreeable. Your job is to be upfront, present complexities, and suggest pathways. It's not necessarily to be a magician. And I will say that I think when I was younger in my career, I think I put a higher burden on myself that I had to have every answer. And I'm more comfortable in the fact that my job is actually orchestrating and creating the framework for success of a lot of really important constituents in that equation. It can't all be me. And if it is all me, I'm not building something that's scalable enough. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing so much information about Oobly. And I guess I've learned a lot about the process of protein and sugar and whatnot. And (laughs) thank you for talking about how you got to where you are today. So I don't know if there are any last words of wisdom you want to leave with everyone who's listening or want to give us the contact information to you so maybe they could say thank you for doing the interview. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's actually been a really delightful conversation and it's been a fun opportunity to get to share a little bit of the science complexity I don't always get to share because I'm humbled and amazed by what biotech is giving us. But at the end of the day, simple consumer products need to be simple and trusted and understood. And therein is probably my best words of wisdom is not losing sight of what it ultimately has to be for the consumer that you're solving the problem for. They probably don't need to even understand what size of tanks we ever use, or even that it was precision fermentation. They just need to think it tastes good enough to get an opportunity to consider it to have a better pathway for their health and for the climate. And that's my words of advice, is not losing sight of the why you do what you do, and what the person that you're solving the problem for needs to understand. Because meanwhile, you got to understand a lot more than that. But thank you for having me. My contacts, and I really do encourage people that are interested in innovation in general, but also sweet protein specifically as a really exciting pathway for better, healthier foods to sign up and follow us at oobly.com. We don't overuse the emails. You can just opt in to know our latest announcements so you know which products we're releasing, where they're available, who we're partnering with, and what do we know about the science that's coming out. We release a pretty cool blog where we're sharing lots of what the new current thinking is about what we're seeing in science and diet. And we think that's an exciting resource for people. And we encourage people to take a look at it. And you can follow us, of course, on any of the socials, either at Oobly, but myself also personally at Alley Wing. And I share as often as I can around innovation, around technology and health. And I have a particular pension for also trying to help more women leaders be more women entrepreneurs in the equation. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Are you looking for more product-based interviews? Well, I got you. Here's five awesome suggestions just for you. Try episode 135 with Jim Kalb of OptiFuse or an old favorite, episode 24 with Starfire Direct. 
Another one, try episode 127. That's 127 with Doug Booten, the founder of Halo Top Ice Cream, which I'm sure you've seen in your local supermarket. Another oldie but goodie, episode 34 with Don DiCostenza of Pedigo Electric Bikes. And last but not least, the touching story in episode 98 with Ann Head. And hey, while you're exploring our awesome back catalog of episodes, why don't you consider becoming a Patreon member? We've got secret Patreon episodes in the product industry, like Patreon episode number 29, where I interviewed the founder of Fatheads, or Patreon episode 3, where I talk with Rick Martinez about succeeding in the cannabis industry. Just check your notes below on how to get these secret episodes right now.